How are the business models for digital media and journalism changing? And how do we separate fact from fiction in the news? Andy Serwer is the editor-in-chief of Yahoo Finance. Andy, tell us about Yahoo Finance and tell us about the work that you do. We are the biggest business news platform in the United States and probably the world with about 90 million monthly users and about 12 million users a day who come to our site for comprehensive news and data about stocks, investments, and the markets. We have a whole range of what we call structured data, which is basically stock charts and tables and information. And then we have a ton of news that we aggregate from other sources like Reuters and Bloomberg. And then, of course, we create our own content, text pieces, uh, live video. We have eight hours of live video programming right now. And then, of course, we have a wonderful podcast and newsletters as well. So it's a full range of business news and data on our platform. Andy, you are a digital platform. What does that actually mean? And how has this changed? How has journalism changed? And what are the impacts on all of us for who are news consumers? You know, I've been started in, in journalism when there was no internet. And so um, well, I was a print journalist for many years, mostly at Fortune magazine, um, done TV, done radio. But Yahoo Finance, of course, is a digital-only platform, which means there is no text, a newspaper, or magazine at all. It's only uh, on the web and on mobile and, and desktop. And that's how it was created. And that creates a different sensibility in terms of how we look at creating, reporting, gathering, and distributing the news. We know that immediacy is as important as accuracy. We know that getting the news to people on any device is extremely, extremely important. Um, so, of course, you know, over the past 10 years, mobile has become a primary focus for us. But there are always new things going on. I mean, alerts, for instance, was something that no one even really considered a few years ago. And now we all use and rely on alerts all the time. And that's the thing about the digital revolution. I'm sure all your other guests will tell you this in all different businesses, that it's not stopping. <laughs> it is ongoing. And of course, we've seen let now even more um, different types of evolutionary tendencies and, and, and strains during um, the coronavirus, which has yet again changed our perceptions of this revolution. Andy, from a content and a news standpoint, has this change in technologies and, and changes in business model that we'll, that we'll talk about affected the way that you approach the gathering and the sorting, sifting, and the dissemination distribution of news? First, an example, you know, when I was back uh, at Fortune Magazine in the 80s and 1990s, when we'd be doing a business story, and we want to get a, um, some, some data on a company, we'd have to uh, get a 10Q or a 10K, which is the quarterly or annual report that a company files with the Securities and Exchange Commission. We'd actually have to go down to a branch of the Securities and Exchange Commission, get into the library, photocopy it, and bring it back. I mean, just amazing. And that would take a whole day, basically, right? And now, of course, you can get that 
in, in, a, in a matter of 10 seconds. And you can sort it and compare it with other companies. So that means there's a lot more information out there readily available. So that raises the bar. You can't just say, oh, I got the 10Q. I mean, can you imagine saying that now? Look what I've got. <laughs> you know, now you've got to really do a lot of value add. Um, and so I think that's changed. It, it, what it means is you've got to go a lot deeper. You can also be a lot faster. So it means that people can do instead of, you know, one story every three days, they can do four stories in one day um, if they want to. So all of that changes um, how journalism is created and distributed. And, you know, at first, when the Internet came around in the late 1990s, we said, oh, this is cool. We'll just put our stories up on the Internet from magazines and newspapers. And, you know, very quickly, we realized that was inadequate for all kinds of reasons. Um, The cadence was different. People basically wanted the news right away, all the time, anywhere. Um, now, there's that, those are the new rules. The old rules still very much apply, and I hope we get into this, Michael, which is accuracy. Um, I remember one time I was talking to a veteran reporter at the New York Post, which is a rollicking tabloid newspaper in New York City. And this guy would make mistakes, Michael. He would make mistakes in his stories, right? And I said, how can you keep printing this stuff? I mean, it's unbelievable. You get things wrong. And he goes, kid, they don't pay me to get it right. They pay me to get it first. <laughs> Which I thought was a mind-boggling comment. I mean, you got to get it right. You got to get it right as well. What are the challenges, the primary challenges or the largest challenges that you face as the editor-in-chief of the largest financial news site in the world? It's super competitive. So we're competing against the likes of CNBC and Dow Jones and Bloomberg and Reuters. And then the new companies like Business Insider and Axios and the information. So competition is rife and that takes various forms. People want to get the story first. They want their alerts to go out first. They want to hire the best journalists. They want to get the best stories. They're trying to steal your journalists. They're trying to steal your audience. They're trying to get better graphics than you are. I mean, it's really like any other business. It's super competitive and getting more so. Now, one other thing we haven't gotten into, which is the business model. Now, the business model of journalism has gotten totally disrupted, to use everyone's favorite word, by the digital revolution. Um, when I was working at Fortune magazine back in the 80s and 90s, pre-internet, uh, these were almost, they were tantamount to monopolies. I mean, they were incredibly high margin businesses. These magazines, Fortune magazine, every Fortune 500 company wanted to put their hugely expensive um, four-color, full-page ads in the magazine, and they paid tens of thousands of dollars to do so. Um, and, of course, that got completely destroyed uh, by the web. And so we all know the, the uh, print dollars went to digital dimes and nickels, um, and advertising has been a very, very tough business. And the subscription business, of course, is what everyone's talking about now with the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and smaller entities as well. Um, and I think that that obviously is a, is a hugely important way for 
um, news organizations to go. But there's another, there are various other pieces of it. I mean, there's also been a tremendous amount of venture capital money in the media business. So oftentimes, and then and then billionaires who've been coming in and buying up properties like Loreen Powell Jobs and Jeff Bezos. So oftentimes, Michael, I'm competing against people who essentially don't have P&Ls. They're either venture backed and they're just looking to gain market share or they're kind of vanity projects, right? And hey, I got a P&L over here, people. <laughs> I mean, I got we got to make some money. We got to do great work and make some money. So, you know, that's just another challenge that um, may or may not be familiar to people. We have a question on LinkedIn. And the question is, to what extent does clicks drive what you do? And how does it affect the quality of the work, the journalism that you produce? You know, at first, this was the be all to end all when digital journalism first was created. And really, literally created is not the wrong word and really was back in the late 1990s. And actually, people would get compensated for that, that reporters would write stories and they would keep track of on boards and newsrooms who got the most clicks and people get paid in some instances, in some instances, they would get compensated directly based on that. Um, it's important to have an editorial mission and it's important to stick to that. If your editorial mission is to get clicks, then you can just print trash and lies and salaciousness and lascivious photographs and videos and do perfectly well until you get sued or arrested, thrown in jail probably because to push the envelope, ultimately you will go there. Um, for us, for instance, we're a business news website. So we ask ourselves, you know, how far do we want to go? Because um, there are lines. We want to serve our audience. You know, we could probably get more clicks by simply doing stories about Kim Kardashian, right? Um, and all the other Kardashians. Sorry to leave you guys out. Um, but my point is then, and we could sort of couch it, Michael, like, oh, the fortunes of Kim Kardashian, her money. And, and to be fair, we might do that, particularly if there was an unknown story about it. Um, but, you know, you'd see people doing things like uh, salaries, uh, slideshows, galleries of salaries of Russian women tennis stars. And really, those were just pictures of Russian women tennis stars um, as an excuse to, like, you know, put them into a business journalism setting. And so we wouldn't do that. Um, the stories have to be legitimate. We want to serve our business audience. We're not looking to grow outside of a business audience, which can be pretty big, as, as our numbers suggest. Um, but, you know, I've seen startups that have wanted to get bigger uh, outside of business news because, you know, sure, 90 million sounds big, but when you compare it to Facebook, it's tiny. And so when you want to get super big, you're going to have to serve everybody and then you lose your focus. and then you're not doing business news anymore. How do you balance this desire for newsworthiness and quality against the fact that you do have a P&L and those easy clickbait clicks must be very tempting? If you've got a reasonable manager and managers and management, and you know, I should say the Yahoo Finances is part of the Verizon Media Group, and we're owned by Verizon now, um, which has been great. 
um, th there is an expectation of growth, but not at, at any cost. I mean, they don't want us to sully or ruin this property. Um, do they want us to experiment and take risks and try new things? Of course they do. Um, but do they want us to embarrass ourselves or the company or more importantly, lose focus? Um, they don't want that. I mean, people come to us, you know, the, the 10 to 12 million people every day. And the reason I say that is because it varies month to month. They come to us because they want business data and they want business news. They want to find out basically what's going on in the markets and why. And they want to find out what's going on with their investments. And if we had a story of the secret uh, finances of the Kardashian family, sure, they'd read that. Who wouldn't? But if we went down that avenue day after day, time after time, particularly at the expense of what we call our core content, our audience wouldn't be happy. I wouldn't be happy. Our bosses wouldn't be happy. Mark Machetto asks, do you feel you've cracked the code on moving from print ad dollars to digital ad pennies? Or is that still a challenge? It's a really insightful question. You know, Yahoo doesn't have any print advertising at all. Um, uh, it's Listen, advertising is a fraught business. I, I will tell you, just talking about the transition a little bit, then I'll maybe talk a little bit more about Yahoo. Um, at first, when people thought they could just move their business models to digital and going from print, you go from the, the dollars to the nickels and dimes. Um, that was a hugely difficult challenge. And But what people quickly realized that it's, it was actually worse than that, Michael, because people, particularly say if you're a regional newspaper, Oh, we'll just put it all up on the web. And yeah, well, our margins are going to contract, but we're going to you know, cut costs and lose some people. But here's the thing. No one really goes to a regional newspaper website. I mean, ask yourself, when was the last time you went to a regional newspaper website? Sure. I mean, of course, you go to Facebook, you go to Google, you go to LinkedIn, you go to Twitter, you go all that. And then you probably go also to things like the Wall Street Journal or the FT or um, the New York Times. But regional newspapers are having it really tough. So a lot of these properties, smaller media companies, realized it was like not nickels and dimes. It was kind of getting close to zero. So that's been a real challenge. Um, advertising on digital platforms is, in a sense, no less challenging because pricing is always um, under pressure because um, there's tremendous supply and demand imbalances and advertisers have a lot of leverage. Um, people keep coming up with new ad formats that frankly often are very intrusive in terms of the user experience. So that's not so good. People create new categories like native um, ads, of course, um, and um, you know different kinds of video units. Of course, video um, ads became you know the rage five years ago and still are. But um, pricing is under pressure there as well. So that's why there's been this real move towards subscription revenue. Um, and another another form of revenue in the media business was conferences, and that was that was good, although it's somewhat limited in terms of scale at a conference. But um, that, of course, has been completely shut out this year. Um, virtual conferences is much tougher nut to crack. Um, but subscription, 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 um, and you know the New York Times and the Journal have done you know excellent jobs um, converting their businesses and. 
you know, we're at the very beginning stages of that, quite honestly. We've been such an ad platform for so many years that it's quite frankly a, a bit of a DNA adjustment for us to get into that. But we have Yahoo Finance Premium, um, which we're very proud of, which has a premium um, uh, content, mostly uh, pre- premium functionality. Um, and uh, we've been growing that business nicely. Arthlan Khan asks, in the age of data journalism, journalists use data per- to portray a story, but sometimes this data can be cherry-picked. And so, therefore, do you need to train journalists in data science, at least at a basic level, so that they can discern fact from fiction in, that, in, the, in the data? You know, everything's new is old again, and um, or the same old rules apply. So, in other words, this is a form of reporting, and you need experienced people to teach younger people, newer people, I should say, how to do it. Is that different from a veteran cops reporter helping a junior cops reporter? To my mind, there's a lot of similarities. Um, is it more complicated and a whole different um using wholly completely different forms. Absolutely. But there are definitely pitfalls and, you know, you can torture the data until they scream. And we all know that. And you can make the data fit your narrative. These are things, um, traps that journalists have been taught to avoid since time immemorial. In other words, don't let a preconceived notion guide you down the path of some place that is will lead you to an inaccurate story. Not only, not only um, from a perspective of making a mistake, which is bad enough, but the even more egregious error of having a false conceit underlying the entire narrative. Um, that is incredibly dangerous. I was just working with a junior reporter this week who has an enterprise story about a very powerful business executive. Um, and a source is telling him X, Y, and Z, and it seems pretty good. Um, and I told him that he needs to pursue this story, but I said, also, you need to go in with a complete open mind. And, and the data science stuff is very complicated. Um, it requires people to you know, understand how to use databases and um, how they can be manipulated. And it does require a very specific skill set, but the, the understanding of how to avoid problems is the same. From Isaac Sokolik, let's talk about uh, the Facebook and Twitter situation with companies like Unilever. And I think uh, Verizon Media, in fact, uh, today announced that they're not going to be advertising on Facebook. Any thoughts on that? The problems, the myriad problems, Michael, that um, Facebook and Twitter uh, present to our society. And, you know, they've obviously performed great services, but with those benefits have come huge unintended, unintended consequences and miss and misunderstood problems and under acknowledged problems. Um, the situation, you know, that you're referring to specifically with Facebook is a, an ad boycott that has been gaining steam on Facebook um, companies boycotting um, Facebook for a number of reasons, but basically that the company is not able to control or 
unwilling to control and govern content on his platform. And I think it was the Anti-Defamation League put out a memo the other day where it showed a Verizon ad near some questionable comment. And so Verizon, I'm paraphrasing here, um, again, my parent company, so Verizon said they were going to pull their ads for the time being until Facebook got its act together, a la what happened with YouTube. Gee, I think that was five years ago, uh, at least going back to when companies were finding their ads against very, um, very difficult, inappropriate content. I think it was ISIS recruiting um, videos and things like that. Uh, And so YouTube was able to fix the problem. And I think advertisers are asking Facebook to do the same thing. Um, And that doesn't, I mean, then there's all kinds of other things, which is the the content that, that people post and, you know, these companies are facing criticism from all quarters, right? The, the political left says that um, there's it helped Trump win the election and there's interference by Russians and uh, conservatives like the president and um, Ted Cruz say it stifles conservative speech. Um, meanwhile, everyone's using them like crazy. <laughs> so, you know, what does that tell you? I, I think that we're going to have to take a long, hard look at these platforms and, you know, really understand them. I mean, imagine if Ford sold cars and had as little understanding of the cars as Facebook does of its platform. Or imagine if a company like, you know, General Mills had zero regulations over what was in its cereal, you know, that you could just put whatever you wanted in. And, you know, there's a certain amount of caveat emptor that Facebook and Twitter have that other businesses don't have. And <clears throat> I think we all recognize the dangers of caveat emptor. Like, oh, some company makes poison cereal. Well, you know, eventually consumers will figure it out and stop buying it, right? And I think we've accepted that, we've, we've come to the realization that that's not acceptable in our society. As the editor-in-chief of Yahoo Finance, does the ethical buck stop with you? That, in a way, is the most interesting part of the job. And a lot of times people will come to me and say, is this right? Now, what I've discovered in my job over these decades, I have to admit, is that I would say maybe nine times out of 10, when someone comes and goes, I don't know if I should be doing this. Should I be doing this? Usually that means they shouldn't be doing it, right? (laughs) Like if you have to ask yourself, there's a pretty good bet that no. I mean, and let's let's say, look, let's err on on the side of caution here, both from the standpoint of the Yahoo Finance platform, but also from, you know, one's personal reputation. I mean, do you really want to do this? You know, and we have all kinds of conflicts. Well, should I give a speech for money? No, you know, at a, at a company, no, shouldn't do that. Um, well, this person's pitching this story for these reasons. Nope, that's not good either. Um, we should do this story because it gets a lot of clicks, even though it's not exactly um, up to snuff, no. Um, can we do this kind of thing? Yeah, maybe we can do that if we disclose it. Um, so that's a lot of, that's really kind of the most interesting part of the job. What about those new media organizations that are VC funded, as you were describing earlier? If you are a VC funded company, uh, the mandate is very, very clear, and that is to grow so that the people investing can get their money out. What about the ethical situation there and how do you resist 
the pressure to succumb to clicks and all of the other stuff that you were just describing? It's not quite as bad as all that. I mean, it depends. There's a big spectrum too, right? So, you know, if you get, um, if you, if you're starting a legitimate news organization, I think that, um, the backers understand that's the mandate. If you're, if you're starting a news organization where you're just like, I don't give a damn.com. <laughs> well, then what is that? What does that URL tell you? Um, then you don't care. Um, but for, you know, these kind of high profile ones, um, that we've talked about, like the Axioses and the Politicos and, you know, the Buzzfeeds and the Business Insiders and Buzzfeed, sure, you know, they, they've pushed the envelope. I mean, but that was again, sort of their mandate, but not in an unethical way. They just found the weirdest cat videos on the planet. Right. And that was their mandate. I mean, they're not doing anything wrong. They're just putting up like incredibly addictive viral, you know, stuff early days. And then they kind of got more into serious news, but like that was what Jonah Peretti was trying to do. He was trying to find and create viral things on the internet and did a damn good job of it. Um, BuzzFeed's also kind of a cautionary tale in terms of how big it can get. Um, you know, we've seen sites like Mike that have had to, you know, that have, you know, gotten, you know, completely in trouble and with just trying to, you know, grow too big too fast and it not working and also being at the whims of the Facebook algorithm. That was another problem that you could, if you built your business, like, Oh, we're just going to live on Facebook. You know, Mark Zuckerberg just goes like this one day, beep, and your business is gone. You know, Quartz is another company that's been under pressure recently, a very hot, shiny young s- startup that also did incredibly great work. Um, but there, there are limits to, to the business. As editor-in-chief, you are responsible for curating a huge amount of content all the time. How do you how do you do that? How do you discover what's important and what's accurate? And what should us laymen, us consumers of news, be doing? It's almost impossible sometimes, it seems, to determine accuracy. First of all, we have about 60-plus partners, news partners, some of those big names that I mentioned, and some smaller, say, trade publications – we work very hard to vet them. And if uh, they don't meet our standards, if they make mistakes, they get warned. And if they continue to make mistakes, we terminate the relationship. Um, And uh, we're not shy about doing that. So uh, that's an important thing. Um, When there is a mistake, people notify us right away. We notify the original um, creator of the content. They take it down. They have to fix it. We fix it on our site, et cetera. If we have a mistake by one of our reporters, we look to fix it. We correct it. We say that we've corrected it. Um, we are all ears when it comes to hearing from people. Um, sometimes there's gray areas, uh, but we want to make sure that we're very much doing the right thing. Um, you know, truth, Michael, truth in this era has become you know, something that people seem like they don't understand as much that, oh, there's various versions of the truth. And do you need the truth? And do you need to tell both sides of the story? And those there's, you know, first of all, there is truth. There is still truth. There are some things that require a couple of sides, but there's also uh, a false equivalency. For instance, I remember, you know, going back to George W. Bush, where um, the administration was saying, well, we have to, you have to print, you know, saying this person says that, um, 
there's weapons of mass destruction. There's no weapons of mass destruction. You have to print that RSOC. And I remember talking to some people and saying, well, there weren't any weapons of mass destruction. So we're not going to print that. I mean, you know, you can't have a false equivalency like that. Um, and I think that's something that editors and journalists have to weigh very often. You know, it's like, I'm looking outside, the sky's blue. I'm not going to have another person's opinion who says this. it's raining. It simply isn't raining. I'm sorry. And it's not worth printing that. In fact, it's confusing. In fact, it's disinformation. In fact, it's misinformation. And going back to another point about, um, you know, where to get great information. I mean, very specifically, I, I would, you know, stick with the brand names that you know. Sorry to say that. And, you know, startups need to prove themselves. And I, I think a lot of them have done an excellent job. And some of them I've mentioned, you know, like the Politico and Axios and the information. And these are, you know, news organizations that have been created by veteran um, journalists. And they have, you know, displayed in a, in a pretty sh in a, in short order that it's legit. But Man, I'll tell you, you know, I have tremendous amount of respect for Reuters, right? There's nothing like a Reuters story. They're a great news organization. You know, some people complain about the New York Times is, does this and the Wall Street Journal does that. Um, I think you can make that case. I think they both do great jobs. But if you, you know, there's still the AP and the Reuters out there, which I think are tremendous news organizations. I mean, Bloomberg, these people care a heck of a lot about what they do and being accurate. Are they perfect? By no means. Um, does Bloomberg report on Mike Bloomberg? They do not, right? On the other hand, every newspaper has, or every news organization or media outlet has an owner, okay? Uh, the New York Times may disagree with me and Dow Jones may disagree with me, but I would not go to the, to the New York Times to find the most definitive articles about Carlos Slim, who is a big investor. I would not go to Dow Jones to find the ultimate story on Rupert Murdoch, okay? Covering your boss is hard, but that's always been the case. That's not true. So don't get lost down that blind alley. I think those names that I talked about are, are a great place to start and maybe to end. I mean, if you start seeing things on Facebook, like you've never heard of this news organization, and it has a very strong opinion about something you're scratching your head about, you're right to question it. Question it. At CXO Talk asks, with the consolidation in the digital media industry, are we really gaining more choice or is it the same content from multiple sources? It's interesting because, um, and Ben Smith at the New York Times has written about this, that when... Um, Digital news first was being created, and there were all these new um, media companies. It looked like there would be this incredible proliferation of new sources of news and information, new media companies. Um, but what people found out is that it's really hard. Um, you know, I thought you were going to get a long tail and you're going to get like, oh, you know, um, uh, digital technology news and this and that. And, and, and you still might, and they're still sort of out there, but they're very hard. I mean, you know, it's hard to start a media business, eh, Michael, right? I mean, it's, it's not easy. There's a lot of work. And then you start hiring four people, all of a sudden, like the money is where for this. So um, 
what's happened is is that there has been a lot of consolidation, and this is the this was Ben Smith's first um, column in the New York Times. Became the media columnist a couple of months ago. Um, so I think it's definitely something to be concerned about. I mean, regional papers that I was talking about before are still getting shut down all over the place, and during this um, coronavirus pandemic, I mean, we've seen like you know hundreds and hundreds of journalists lose their jobs. Um, there are less sources and, you know, yeah. And the news sources, a lot of them are these sort of skeevy, not real news organizations. They just have a name and they're basically bots or, you know, sources of misinformation. So you have to be extremely careful. We have another question on LinkedIn, and this is from Isaac Sokolik. How do you define editorial excellence and how should, how should fake news be defined? There's different ways to do that. Are you breaking a news story? Is it something that's new? Um, what is it? Someone said, news is telling people something other people don't want to know. Otherwise, everything else is a press release. Um, and there's something to that. I think that's a little extreme, but it's a, it's a, certainly directionally right. Um, so breaking news, getting cited by other news organizations is another form of excellence. Excellent writing, writing where you just, you know, you're reading a story and you smile to yourself and you just got, you just shake your head. That, that is really something or something. Excellence is also something that gets right to the point, man, I got it. Boom. That's it. And it can be a broadcast person who perfectly, she perfectly tells you what is going on, maybe through presentation, maybe through analysis. That's also excellence. There's also, um, a whole host of awards in journalism, of course, the Pulitzers, of course, and the, you know, the DuPonts awards, and then the Loeb awards in business journalism, which is the highest awards for business journalism. Um, so those are out there as well. And I consider those very important. Fake news. Oh boy, that's funny because I mean, it has two meanings to me. Uh, one is news that is untrue. It's untrue, it's demonstrably false, and it's fake. And another is what it started with uh, President Trump using to describe news that he didn't like, that wasn't flattering to him, that didn't describe him in a favorable light. So um, that's his definition of fake news, which to me is fake news. But that starts to get a little complicated. But I think there are, you know, he's... He says that's fake news when actually what he's saying is fake news, to my mind, when he says something is untrue, that's true, which he has done. Tell us a little more about the Yahoo finance story and how have you been managing? We've, we've spoken about the transition of media. What about the transition from this long period of time ago when the world was different, like three months ago? How have you guys managed the transition from uh, to work from home and as as a business? What's going on with ya with Yahoo and Yahoo Finance? We had to make a transition. We were based in New York City in a newsroom of about 150 people. That includes our video team as well. And it became clear in the middle of March that we were going to have to get the hell out of Dodge. We we're going to have to leave uh, headquarters and work from home. And we 
at first were very vexed by that because we do this eight hours of live programming and you need a full blown TV studio to do that, um, that we had built up over the past year or so. And we were trying to think, well, what does this mean? We're going to have to shut down uh, our video. And then we were doing it on one of these chats, just like this. And we happened to use a product called Google meet. And so um, at that point it was called hangouts. And so we said, well, could we just, could we put this, could we connect a Google Meet, just plug it in to Yahoo Finance? We had some engineers and people that, well, we could try, we could do it, I think, I think it would work. And we actually rang up Google and asked them if they could help us a little bit and what they thought. And they were very, very accommodating, I must say, hats off to Google. Uh, an ancient uh, uh, rival of ours <laughs> uh, going back a uh, number of years. Uh, and uh, so uh, in a matter of about 36 hours, we pivoted completely to completely working from the office to completely working from home, including this live video production. And uh, the numbers in our audience um, was the strongest it's ever been. We had record numbers of uh, audience in, in the months of uh, April and May. And it's still very, very strong because people need to know what's going on in the world and particularly with their financial situation in the markets. So we've been very gratified. We've been able to serve our audience and keep our people safe at the same time. Any thoughts on what you'll be doing next as the world goes back? Uh, have you learned, are, are you doing new things now that you will retain in the future when things return to quote unquote normal, whatever that is. Well, we've learned so much about doing these kinds of things, like the, the way the two of us are talking right now, Michael, and it's allowed us also to get access to guests that quite frankly, we weren't able to get before because, you know, of course you had to convince someone to come into the studio and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, they had to be in New York and this and that. I mean, of course we had Skype prior to that, but we looked down our nose at Skype. Um, now I think that um, the world is completely accepting of this type of format. And so I think that we'll never not use this anymore. Um, in fact, we're going to be using this format for a number of months going forward because um, we're not concerned that it's completely safe for everyone to go back to work in New York. So we're going to be staying the course here um, and using this uh, Google Meet for, for quite some time. This system's pretty darn good, I have to tell you. So we started CXO Talk seven years ago. We used Google Hangouts at the time. Uh, about three and a half years ago, I was really unhappy with Google Hangouts. So I got in touch with Eric Yuan, who's the CEO of, uh, of Zoom. And at that time, nobody was using Zoom, but it was really good. So I got in touch with him and I said, you know, we'll switch CXO Talk over to Zoom, but you guys have to make some tweaks to your software to, for, to accommodate what, what we need. And they did. And this is now, the, well, now everybody's doing, using this, this kind of approach. It's pretty great. That's fantastic. It's a similar story. Um, and, but you were an early adopter, no doubt about that. Andy, any final thoughts before we say goodbye for today? I just hope everyone uh, is staying safe and uh, also staying the course and understanding that we have a long road ahead of us. I think that's pretty clear, but we're all going to get through this. And uh, I think we're going to learn a lot and our lives are going to be changed forever. And I hope what we take away from it is, is the good part.
Everybody, we've been speaking with Andy Serwer. He is the editor-in-chief of Yahoo Finance. I'd like to thank Andy and thank everybody who watched and especially those folks who contributed and participated with questions before you go. Please, please subscribe on YouTube and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website and we'll send you really excellent material. Thank you so much, everybody, and I hope you have a great day. We'll see you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks. <laughs>